Anyway, guys, we're in the middle of a, of a series right now called Who Needs God? And we're exploring kind of some of the, the skeptics' um, kind of reasoning or reasons to maybe not believe. And we want to kind of challenge some of those. And, and what, what you'll notice if you've been here the last three weeks is we're not simply trying to throw everything at, at once at you. We're not even saying right off the bat, why this is why it makes sense to believe in Jesus. We're kind of challenging some of the, the ideas that people have about how life can be lived and some of the things that are super important in life. And if we were to believe in Christianity, we, that would really be challenging some of these things. So we don't really want to you know, kind of buy into that. And that's kind of what we're looking at. Uh, today as well. If you guys want to grab your Bibles or your phones and turn to uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. If you open your Bible smack dab in the middle, you, you will most likely land there. Psalm 119, and we are going to read verses 41 to 48. Verses 41 to 48. And if you could stand out of respect for God's Word, and because I am, I would appreciate that. And we do this, uh, this is actually an ancient form of worship, to stand up out of respect for the revealed word of God to us, the word of God to us this morning. The psalmist says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, or Yahweh, the personal name of God, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly from my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide space, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. God of grace, I pray that you will speak to us this morning through your word, I pray you would open up our hearts and minds to what you would want to speak to us this morning through this very ancient but very applicable text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Um, in Psalm 119, verses 41 to 48, we read words that are very foreign to us in 2018 in Coquitlam, B.C., Canada. And they're very foreign to us, not because they're literally foreign to us geographically, um, not only because they are thousands of years old from a different culture, from a different language, but the very idea, the very concept of finding joy and freedom in something that was given to us or something that was told to us is a foreign idea to us. That we should be able to come up with that on our own. The idea that we would rejoice and find hope and freedom in the words of God for our lives is confusing in this age, an age that equates freedom with complete control, complete control over what I do. It has to come for me to have any real freedom to it. In fact, the idea of joining a group like this and saying, I'm part of something bigger than myself, that we are going to all agree on something and move in one direction together in a, in, a, in a format, in a way that was given to us rather than something we came up is a foreign concept to most people. And do not dare to pry my hands off my own freedom. We have a dog, a cute dog. Sha, you stopped by. You saw our, saw our dog this week. 
And I said to you what I said to many, say to many people who meet our dog, he is very cute. And it's a good thing because that's literally all he has going for him. <laughs> he is the dumbest dog. You, we have thrown fluorescent, well, I know they're colorblind, so that doesn't matter. But we have thrown balls for him that are waiting at his feet. And he will look at us. Like, where, where is it? Like, it's right there. Get the he does that typical thing of, of grabbing the ball 50 yards away from us and then looking up and then just dropping it and then running back up to us without a ball. Like we produce them, like Spider-Man produces webs or something. Just, a ball just comes out of our hand and we throw it for him. This week, we've had a, uh, a, two situations happening simultaneously. One is that he's found a hole in the fence. And so I've, I got a phone call once this week from a neighbor who saw our, my number on his dog tag. Um, we've, come, we've been in our living room a few times and seen him running out the front. And, but happening at the same time, we've also had bears visiting the front yard and knocking down our garbage cans. So this is what my dog's thinking. He's thinking, freedom! Freedom! I'm free. And we're inside looking out thinking, danger! Danger! And the bear's outside thinking, hors d'oeuvres! Hors d'oeuvres! <laughs> There's a kind of freedom that we think we're living in that can often be a danger. That often having things around us actually brings a new kind of freedom and a new kind of safety in our lives. There's a kind of freedom that only comes from relieving ourselves of complete autonomy in our lives, of releasing our control. And I would argue that there are times and ways that that a call for unfettered freedom in our lives actually brings chaos and burden, not happiness brings danger, and not just for ourselves, but the people we love, the people around us, for a few reasons. The first of which is that freedom is more complex than we think it is. This concept of freedom that we have is far more complex than we think it is. It's it's not easily understood. What does it mean to be free? Does it just mean getting whatever we want, whenever we want it, and however much we want? And if so, how does that play out when we have conflicting feelings in our heart? How does that play out when my freedom is in conflict with your freedom? Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing to just say, wherever my heart leads me, that's the freedom I should be allowed to have? Jeremiah, the prophet, said these these words of God. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus says in Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So our heart follows after our treasure. Our our heart basically goes where our gut goes. Do we just want our heart to go anywhere we just feel like it? Is Is that a healthy way to live? Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs would say no, because in Proverbs 28, 26, he says, whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. He who allows some constraints, some, some words from the outside, that's the wise person. I mean, if I trusted my heart this week in so many ways that my heart wanted to go, I'm afraid to know where I would be right now. Probably wouldn't be up front in front of you preaching. There'd be all sorts of reasons I shouldn't be if I just followed my heart. I mean, you guys have had this experience. You go to, 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 to get gelato or something, and they have those wonderful little spoons. Would you like a sample? Oh, I'd like a sample. And you try a flavor you've never tried before, and you taste it like, I, I'm pretty sure this is the best flavor that exists in the world. Can there be a better flavor than this? I submit that there cannot. <laughs> and then they say, would you like to try this? And then all of a sudden, you're, you, what, what was that other flavor? This is the best flavor I've ever tasted in my life. I don't think there is any other flavor. Do I really want to make life decisions with my heart? 
that can be that, just like that, that can so easily shift because well, this feels really good right now. This must be the only way to go. Is that the way we want to live our lives? Or should there be something informing my freedom? Freedom must be more than just getting whatever we want. It's more complex than that. It's more complex than that. The other thing is that freedom can be paralyzing. See, uh, several years back, and I've heard Nick use this, this guy as well. His name's Barry Schwartz. He gave a talk uh, on TED Talks in which he pointed out the fact that the Western world bases its happiness on freedom and that the basis of our freedom is choice. Therefore, the more choice you and I have, the freer you and I have. The more in freedom we will live if we have more choice. And he, he says that it is so deeply embedded in the water supply his words, that we would never think to question that idea. More choice, more freedom. Schwartz talks about going to buy jeans. He said it used to be really easy to buy jeans because there was only one pair of jeans. They only fit one way, and you could put them on and leave, and you, you were fine with that. They, they fit horribly, but who cares? In six months, they'll fit about right. So going for jeans now, and it sounded like he hadn't bought jeans for 20, 30 years, walks into a store, and then there's button fly, there's zipper, there's distress, because we need more of that in our life. They didn't have peace jeans. They just had distress jeans. Relaxed, skinny, right? All that. He said there are a thousand choices. He left after an hour, probably wearing the best-fitting jeans he's ever worn in his life, and he was the least satisfied he'd ever been because he knew there must have been something better there. There had to be. With all that choice, he must have made a mistake. So choice didn't bring him freedom. It, it, it kind of gave him, him bondage. This week... I could choose 20 different ways to communicate with each of you. It's not bringing me freedom. I can text you. I can, I can well, in, in our uh, church office, we use something called Glip. And you're always kind of keep track. Was that in a group or was that just an individual person I was speaking to? We can use Messenger. We can, oh, we, we can email. Introverts, there's also a thing called a phone call where you actually talk to the person. Yeah, Yuck. <laughs> I know people who do not answer their phone. Too many ways to communicate. And then try to get back in a conversation that you didn't have for a few weeks. Well, how was I communicating with them again? Which one of these 10 ways was I using to communicate? You know when I find freedom? When I cut off the Wi-Fi. And I can concentrate on what I'm actually trying to do. I rarely get through a song on iTunes or Spotify. Why? i got a thousand songs. Man, there's got to be a better song out there. We used to sit down and listen to full albums. Now it's like you get halfway through the first song, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to go listen to 10 other songs for the next, in the next 10 minutes, and I'm still not going to be satisfied. Netflix. How many people here have not finished a season that they started? Don't, don't put your hands up. I'm in the middle of like 10 seasons of shows. Why? Because there's got to be something else. So we, we refuse to live in the moment because there's got to be something else out there. That's not bringing freedom. That's bringing chaos and busyness to our lives. And not experiencing the moment as we could. A lack of constraint actually steals life from us. But what about if the more important what about the more important arenas of our life, like community and family, other areas where we can find fulfillment? The, the fact is unfettered freedom is, is constantly, it's constantly in conflict in our lives. That's why the psalmist, looking with, with much larger perspective and having what seems to be a very healthy understanding of his own heart, he says this in Psalm 119. Take not the word of truth utterly from my mouth, for my hope, my hope, my freedom, my joy, it's in your rules. What? 
How foreign is that concept? I will keep your laws continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place. You know what's interesting about a wide place? It's wide and it's free, but it still has barriers somewhere. That's how you you measure a wide space is that it has barriers somewhere. And thank you, God, for your word because it lets me know where those barriers are, but it shows me how wide that space is to live in your grace and live in your rules. Every, almost every other version of the Bible, this is the ESV that I usually teach from, almost every other version, if you're reading it, uses the word freedom for that, for wide space. But I love the visual and the concreteness of the ESV there. I shall walk in a wide space, for I have sought your precepts. Why will I live in this wide, free place? Because I'm going to obey your rules. And there, that'll be the gate that keeps me safe from the bear, from the car that's driving by. As a result of following your ways, I will walk in an open space, a wide space. There's freedom in it. There's freedom when, I, when I'm not a slave to my whims. And it's better for me, for those around me, for my community. But what if freedom doesn't come from a lack of restraint, but from the proper restraints? Because that seems to be what he's saying. Maybe that's what, what Paul means when he's talking in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what he's saying, you want to find that freedom, that openness, that holiness. Open up to God and submit to him, that's where it's found. In sacrificing yourself for something greater. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. So blow the walls down and bring it in. <laughs> Living as servants of God. I love that those two words are in the same sentence. Live as free people living as servants of God. It's a mystery. What are they getting at? They're saying that, just like the psalmist, that maybe real freedom is more than just a lack of constraints. They're saying that, uh, Peter implies it, that, that true freedom in life, dare we say, does not just come from personal pursuits. How's that possible? That's not what Disney taught me. You remember that Disney movie where like, the per- like everything's against the one person? Let's name that one. And then, and then like their family and everyone around them, the society says, you'll never make it. And then they follow their dreams and then, and then everything works out for them. What's the name of that one? That's right. <laughs> what Peter implies is that true freedom and life comes not simply from personal pursuits, but community ones. There's a concept. Not by solo endeavors, but by living in and for community. That's why the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 10.25 says... Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Calling for commitment to church attendance on Sundays and calling for commitment to community groups, that's not just about getting butts in the seat. I mean, I love making a good report, but it's not just about getting butts in the seat. It's about your spiritual, emotional, and, you'll see in a moment, physical health. It's part of our discipleship and growth and sanctification to live in community. And that there's a freedom and there's a health in that. One of the main problems with our modern concept of freedom, and this is a recent to our individualistic time, is that modern freedom sacrifices community. 
Modern freedom says yes to me regardless of community. Jonathan Haidt, American social psychologist, makes a very important point in this arena when it comes to the connection between happiness, freedom, and community. He says this. He says, having strong social relationships strengthens the immune. This is all the physical stuff. This is interesting. Strengthens the immune system. Apparently, I wasn't hanging out with people enough this week. I should have been doing that more. Uh, Strengthens the immune system. Extends life more than does quitting smoking. Speeds recovery from surgery. Reduces the risk of depression and anxiety disorder. We need to interact and intertwine with others. We need to give and take. We need to belong. And then he says this, and this is, this is fantastic. Ideology of extreme personal freedom, <clears throat> Disney, can be dangerous because it encourages people to leave homes, jobs, cities, marriages in search of personal and professional fulfillment, thereby, thereby breaking the relationships that were probably their best hope of such fulfillment. We say no to those things that would bring us the very fulfillment we're searching for by tossing them aside and running after our individual freedom. The psalmist says, I won't have any of that. The New Testament writers say, I won't have any of that. You've called me to live in a wide open space. You've drawn the boundaries out there. I'm going to live within those spaces in freedom and in safety and in community. It's the part of Disney we don't see. The family left behind. The, the brokenness of the individual who gave up the family and the community to pursue, pursue personal freedom. Why? Because today, personal freedom is portrayed above all the needs of community. That is a modern concept, by the way. What hate says, what Peter, what the apostles modeled and preached, was that to sacrifice the community for your freedom is actually bondage to hopelessness and a lack of health. Emotionally, and as hate says, physically as well. So freedom is, is, is much more complex than many of us think it is. And I think this is an important point as well. Freedom can, be disguised, it can just be disguised bondage. Freedom can be disguised bondage. Mo- most people are under the illusions that, that we live our lives in charge. That, that when we say we will not worship God or, or submit to anything outside of what we want, that we will somehow be autonomous. That all the, these moving forces in the world will not have any sort of control over how we think and live our lives. But what the biblical writers would argue uh, is, is that we are made for worship. And, and Christian writers have written this for centuries. We are created to worship. Now that, that worship in us, that draw, is, is, should be drawn towards God. And when it's not, we find ourselves in danger. But it's in our makeup to worship. And it, if it is not Jesus, it will be something else. Or someone else. And you see that riddled throughout the Bible. We see that riddled throughout history. We see that riddled throughout our lives. That if it is not worship of God, it's a philosophy. It's an ideal. We devote ourselves, our lives to it. It's how we were created to live. And that's not just a biblical or a religious idea. Some of you have probably heard this. One of the most popularly quoted quotes on, on this idea. David Foster Wallace, who was a humanist, uh, naturalist, novelist, uh, took, took it to a task, actually, to, to speak against many of the commonly mis, misunderstood ideas of what it means to live in a society and to live truly free. 
He was giving a speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and this is what he says. He, and it's a long quote, so, so work with me here. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. It's not a man of faith saying this. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you are doing. And this is the important part of what he says. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Wow. What is he saying? A lot. He's saying if you think for a second that saying no to God is some sort of autonomy, it's not. If you're saying yes to the worship, you are saying yes to the worship of something else. And those other things actually go against how you were created. They go against who you are, and because of that, they will naturally harm you. They will fight against you. They will pour poison on your soul. Some of you have sailed before, or, or, or at least watched someone sail, watched a sailboat. And when you see a sailboat skimming along the water, you know one thing, that the sailor is not fighting the wind, Right? In order to, to move well and skim across the water, you know that he's, going, I, you know that he's not saying, I, I don't care what the wind wants to do. I'm going to do this my way. That's how they end up in the rocks. That's how they end up on shore. That's how they end up flipped over. A good sailor is going to learn where the wind is going and adjust his sails to move freely with the wind. There is a way for you and I to live our lives where we submit to and honor our given Limits, and unless we submit to them, we find ourselves continually fighting against the wind. So we're not free to choose whatever we want. If we truly want to live lives that feel free, that's, that's impossible. We get the best freedom when we're willing to submit our choices to the realities of how we were designed and how we are composed And that's the third thing. True freedom comes from proper constraints. True freedom comes from proper constraints. Real freedom comes from from giving up freedoms in order to gain better life-giving ones. That's why Tim Keller suggests this. He says, what we should be looking for are the right, the liberating constraints that fit our nature and design, which master which master is the right master for our hearts and lives and so brings those right constraints. 
Well, we find a clue of where we should be looking. Like, who would best know? Well, where's the pastor going to lead this? Who would best know what proper constraints ought to be on our lives? The psalmist in Psalm 139 has an idea. He says, oh, Lord, you searched me. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search my paths and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is, is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. This God who sees, who does not stand far off, he, he comes in person, in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, don't wander. Don't fight who you were made to be. The God who answers the question, who can understand my human heart? He also invites us through his son, Jesus Christ, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That describes every single one of us in the room. Take my yoke upon you. He's using an old term of connecting to an ox. There's a, there's a connection there. There's a binding to. There's a constraint there. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. No other God you chase after, no other idea, no other philosophy can promise that. No other thing you attach yourself to can promise that. The invitation is one of constraint and giving up. Yes. It has never been any other message that Jesus has given. Jesus has never pulled the bait and switch. He says, come to me, take up your cross, and follow me. That is not balloons and clowns. That is die to yourself and come to me. Can, let me put constraints on your life that bring freedom and hope and life eternally. Dietrich Bonhoeffer got this. In very short quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Cost of Discipleship, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to yourself, die to all the things that your heart's going to run after, and attach yourself firmly to me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did not say that lightly. It was not just theology for him. He was staring into the eyes of Nazi Germany. He knew exactly what he was saying. But there is a way that we are created to go and pursue where we are not fighting how we were created and actually find a level of freedom that we could never have in any other way. Free from an ongoing low-grade fear of the unknown, fear that our sin is catching up, that shame would be our, our constant companion, See, when we, attach, when we attach ourselves to Christ, and, and that's his invitation, we attach ourselves to one who gave everything up, who gave all his freedom up. Can you, can you give up more freedom than being nailed to a cross, to being put in your spot? He gave it all up for you and I. If the gospel narrative is, is to be believed, if the story of Jesus is to be believed, and I believe there's very good reason for it, to be believed, and we'll be walking through that in the next few weeks. We, we, when we submit to him, we submit to one who will not punish us if we fail him. He has already proven that on the cross. He took our punishment, he took our sin, so he absorbs our, our failure, so when we fail him, he will not punish us, but forgive us. Your career will not make that promise. Our many relationships and pursuits cannot make that promise. They will give up on us. 
They will burn us alive. They will crucify us. Not so Jesus. Not so the gospel. Jesus is the only one who, who we can live for, as Wallace says, we can worship that will never exploit you. Our relationships will fight to exploit us at times. Our pursuit of money and prestige will exploit us. Christianity is the only religion, the only worldview that says that God gave up his freedom so that we could experience ultimate freedom. So that you and I could throw away whatever God we find ourselves worshiping this morning, today, this week, and submit to the ultimate liberating restraint of Christ. That's the invitation of the gospel. Jesus makes a claim that no other pursuit in our lives can make and that every other pursuit of man has proven unable to sustain and complete. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God of grace, oh, God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the freedom that comes from submitting to the gospel. And it's my prayer this morning, God, if, if there are those who've, who've come in this morning and they want nothing to do with you, they want nothing to do with church, they want nothing to do with community, it's my prayer this morning that, that you would at least open their eyes to the possibility of the freedom that comes in following you, in following a God who would humble himself so deeply that he would take on flesh and walk among us, who would give up his freedom to purchase our freedom at the cross. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning, Jesus. We find ourselves at the foot of the cross. We have nothing to offer you, only our lives. And we're mindful as we do so that you offered yours. And if we flash back over this week, we can look at how our career, we can look at our marriage, we can look at where our mind has gone, where we've allowed ourselves to go on the internet, where we've allowed ourselves to spend our evenings, how we've spent our time, and we can point out very easily where our constraints are, what gods we've decided to chase after this week. Every single one of them leads to death. Every single one of them wants to draw us from you. We need to plant you firmly at the center, Jesus. And so that is what we want to do this morning. So Jesus, however we come, we want to move closer to you. Whatever we've been grasping on too strong and we pray through your spirit, you'd point that out. You'd pry our hands open and we'd give it over to you. And Jesus, we thank you for the invitation. While we were running the opposite way, your invitation to say, come to me. Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Come to me. If you're laboring, if your life just feels heavy, I'll give you rest. I'll give you the kind of freedom that, that makes it feel like you're walking in a wide open space where you don't have to fear a life of lying, fear a life of cheating. You, where you don't have to, no longer have to be defined by your past, but you were defined by a singular moment where the Son of God gave his life for yours. God, open our hearts and minds to you 
this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we are going to take communion this morning. And it's the first time we're doing it here in the theater, so be gracious. <laughs> um, but first, just a quick explanation of what communion is. For those of you who don't know what communion is, uh, communion is, is a form of worship that was given to us by Jesus himself on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he would be taken in by, by the Jews and given over to the Roman authorities. He took bread while he was having a meal and celebrating with his, with, with his disciples. And he took bread and he broke it and he passed it around and he said, I want you, every time you meet together, I want you to eat bread together and I want you to remember that this bread forever will represent my body. The, my body that was given freely for you for the sins of man. That I would sacrifice myself so you wouldn't have to sacrifice yourself. And then he handed around the cup and they drank from the cup. And he said, and, and whenever you drink together, I want you to remember that this cup represents my blood that was spilled for you for the payment of your sins. It's a beautiful story. It's also grotesque. See, but in this story, we see the grotesqueness of our sin meet the amazing, love, stubborn love of God. And we see the meat of the cross. And you know what? His love looks all the more lovely because we see it in contrast to our sin. When we understand the depth of our sin, we understand the height of God's love. And that's what we celebrate. So when we take communion, there's a few things we're doing. We're, we're saying that we are no longer identified by our past because Christ took care of that at the cross if you're a Christ follower. We also look to the future because Jesus said, I want you to do this until I return. This is going somewhere. This epic story that I was talking about last week, this is going somewhere. Christ will return. But see, as we eat also, this Christianity is not some pie in the sky when you die. Oh, give your life to Jesus, pray the magical prayer, get your passport stamped, and when Jesus comes, you can fly up to heaven with him. That's a boring story. We preach a Christ who lives and who wants to live and walk with you now. And so as we eat the bread together and drink of the cup, I want you to be reminded that Christ is with us now in this room and he is with you as you step out through this week into the chaos that his spirit lives and moves through you. Okay, so as we do this here, if you're a Christ follower, you are welcome to take part in this. You don't have to be a member of, of CA Church. Um, if, you, if you call Jesus your Lord, and forgive her, you're welcome to take part in this. But if you're not a Christian, I'm just going to ask that you, that you hold back from taking part. It would mean nothing to you. It would just be a snack. You can get those later after the service. Um, but it would be my desire, it would be my hope, if you're not a Christ follower yet, you come talk to me after the service. It would be a great joy to know that next time we take communion, you would be able to take it, uh, take it with us. Yeah? So how we're going to do it today is we're going to have, I'm going to ask the, the, those who are going to be serving today to come up. We're going to have a station here. And we're going to have a station over here. I'm just going to move the, yeah, move the mic out of the way, Soren, thanks. And I'm going to ask that as you come down, you come down this side to your left. And once you've taken communion, you can either take it at the station here or just make your way across and grab it here. And then we'll make our way back up there that way. Those are my simple instructions for you. Uh, we are going to worship. And when you feel ready to go, if you're up at the top and you plan on taking communion, you might want to get on it. Uh, um, but other than that, when you feel ready, just make your way down this way and back on up and let's just be uh be aware of each other allow people in and out all right let's pray god of grace thank you so much oh for the beautiful story you've invited us into that is so much bigger than our day-to-day -day, but affects greatly our day-to-day -day. 
And God, anyone who has come in here today feeling small, I pray that the cross would lift them up. And Jesus, anyone who's walked in here today feeling so far above any of this, I pray they would be humbled by what they see in the cross and the depths that our creator would go to to bring us close. And so we celebrate the humility and the power and the love of our God through communion this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.